Have you ever done something that you really regretted? I know the Christian answer for that is, of course, we regret all the sins that we commit. But let's be honest here. Uh, Have you ever done something and then a day later, maybe right afterward, maybe a week, a year later, you look back on that choice and it's kind of a kind of a facepalm like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? That was that was retarded. I can't believe I did that. Have you ever experienced consequences for something that were so deep and dark that there seemed to be no way out up from them? No light at the end of the tunnel. I think uh, with all the social media now, we we get to see that a little bit more, unfortunately, where people will send out a tweet and then they just get a bunch of of negative responses, and then they're trying to uh, trying to take that back, trying to delete it off their account and 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 recant, but it's it's too late, man. It's out there in the ether. What do you do when you've blown it big time, and now you've just unleashed a flood of negativity? into your life. What comes next? August 15, 1998 was possibly the worst day of Bill Clinton's life. For eight months he had lied to Hillary, his advisors, and the nation. But now, knowing that Monica had come to an agreement to tell the truth about their affair, and that a DNA sample had made it undeniable, Clinton would have no choice but to testify truthfully before the grand jury in two days. There was no room to run, nowhere to hide, no way of escape. Early that morning, Bill woke up his wife to tell her the truth. According to Hillary, he paced back and forth by the bed before his confession. When he finally got to the point, Hillary could hardly breathe, and yet she demanded answers. What do you mean? What are you saying? Why did you lie to me? I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Bill replied. I was trying to protect you and Chelsea. Hillary later described herself as feeling dumbfounded, heartbroken, and outraged all at the same time. By some accounts, Hillary lunged at Bill, hitting him and shouting, you stupid blank. When she got herself under control, she told him that he had to go and tell Chelsea himself. And that's when Bill began to cry. What do you do in that moment when you come face to face with the fact that you have done something horribly wrong? There's no denying or escaping it, and now you're reaping the whirlwind of your choices. I have to think that in a group like this, in a room this size, there are some people carrying burdens like that. What do you do when you realize that your own selfishness has helped to create an icy chasm between you and a loved one that no bridge can seem to cross. A wound so deep that no amount of suturing can seem to close it. And he or she comes to you and says, we're through. I don't want to talk anymore. I want out. What do you do as the lust fades away and you realize that you've done something that could destroy your future, your marriage, your legacy as a parent, and your leadership in the church? What do you do as the feelings of rage begin to die down and you see the terror and the brokenness in the eyes of your kids and you realize that you can't take back what you just said and did? What do you do when you get called into a meeting at work 
and realize that you've been exposed. All those little compromises, a small loan here, a a little white lie there, an occasional tweak of the numbers, none of which seemed like a big deal at the time, but now they threaten to end your career and possibly your freedom. What do you do when the police officer asks you to take a sobriety test that you know you won't pass while paramedics begin removing bodies from the other car? And all those excuses you kept giving for why you don't have a problem with alcohol suddenly seem so hollow. In a group like this, it just stands to reason that there are some here who are dealing with major moral failures in your life. And what you do next, what you do after that failure is a matter of life and death. You can choose to carry your sin and your guilt around your neck like a huge burden, like a 200-pound scarlet letter, or you can choose another way. Today we're talking about repentance. And unfortunately, in our culture, repentance conjures up some pretty negative images. There, apparently, I've never seen it, but apparently there's a real church sign in Texas in front of the church that says this. It says, Heathens, beware. Fornicators, adulterers, liars, hypocrites, lesbians, drunkards, thieves, sodomites, idolaters, blasphemers, potty mouths. Your guilt is real. You deserve to go to hellfire. Repent. And under it, it says, if you want more information, and it gives their website. Very motivating. So here's the problem with that sign. The problem is not so much that it's uncomfortable. Sometimes you have to say things that are uncomfortable. Here's the problem. Yes, God hates sin. He hates all sin. All the sins on this list. But this list misses the root of these sins. It's like chopping off the top of a weed, but it misses the root. And it misses the heart of repentance. See, you could could avoid all the sins on this list and still not be any closer to God. In fact, you might be farther from God. Have you ever wondered why the Old Testament prophets talk so much about idolatry? Over and over. And yes, sometimes they do talk about Israel's other sins. But I would say at least 90% of the time they talk about idolatry. And after a while, you're reading through this. You read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. They're saying the same thing over and over. And after a while, you're like, okay, I get it, right? They struggle with idolatry. Can you say something else? But they just keep pounding on idolatry. Why? Because it doesn't matter how moral and religious you are if you're worshiping the wrong God. You can look like a Christian. You can get your your life in order on the outside and yet your heart can be far from God and in love with other things. We're doing a series on Hosea. And we are, this is the fifth, uh, fifth part of that series. We're, we have, it's a six-part series. So some of you are glad that we're closing in on the end. Uh, some of you might be a little sad. And today we're going to talk about, Hosea is talking about what genuine repentance really looks like. And his focus is not so much on his relationship with Gomer, though it certainly would apply to that. But it's primarily on God's relationship to his people. Throughout the book, Hosea compares his relationship with his wife, who's unfaithful to him, to God's relationship to his people. And here, it's primarily between God and his people. Chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Hosea is calling the people of Israel to repent. 
verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him. As surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. So how does... Hosea define repentance. It's verse 1. He says, let us return to the Lord. He doesn't give a long list of sins to stop doing. There's other places where he does. But he says, this is the heart of the matter. Let us return to the Lord because He will heal us. Return with faith that though God has allowed the, the, the consequences of sin to ravage our lives, to tear us apart, if we return to Him, He will heal us. Then in verse 3, he goes, he goes on, he says, let us acknowledge the Lord. That's not maybe the best translation here. In the Hebrew, the word is just to know. Acknowledge in English has kind of the idea of like, oh yeah, God, you're there. But the idea here for what Hosea is saying, let us know God. And not just know him intellectually. Again, that's kind of this English idea. We, kind of this modern enlightenment to know things is just with your head. But in the Hebrew, it's to know with your, with your head with your heart, your emotions, and with your will. It's to know somebody completely the way a, a husband and wife have intimacy and they know each other completely. And so Hosea says, let's know God that way. And, so, and then he goes on, he says, let us press on or press in to know the Lord. Let's not just be content to know Him. Let's return to Him wholeheartedly and let's press in. Let's press on. Let's push in to really know God deeply. That's what repentance is. But then in verse 4, God begins talking. And He says the problem with Israel's repentance thus far. He says, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Here's God's critique of their repentance. He says it's short-lived and it's superficial. Short-lived and it's superficial. They come to church, they come to the temple, they get real emotional, and they say, God, things are hard. We need you. God, we repent. And maybe they cry a little bit. And they offer some sacrifices, and they say, God, look how much we care about you. But then their repentance is like a mist, and it's gone. And it doesn't even get at what God really is concerned about. Verse three, he, or verse 6, he says, I desire mercy. The word there in Hebrew, it's chesed. I desire chesed. Chesed, it, it involves mercy and compassion, but it's much more than that. Chesed means covenant love. The kind of love that a husband and a wife covenant together to have for each other. Whether they feel like it or not, they have covenanted to love each other for the rest of their lives. And God says, that's what I desire with you, Israel. I desire covenant love, not sacrifice. You come and you offer these sacrifices, that's fine, but that's not really high on my priority list. I want covenant love. And he says, and acknowledgement should be, and knowledge of God to know me, 
more than burnt offerings. I want you to come to have covenant love, to return to me wholeheartedly, and then to know me deeply. I want that far more than all your sacrifices. Throughout his book, Hosea portrays God as a husband who is pleading with his unfaithful wife to come home. And over and over he says to her, I'm hurt and I'm angry about what you've done, but I still love you. I always will love you. Return to me. Know me. Find forgiveness and restoration. Let's let's start again. Let's begin anew. That's how God pleads with people to repent. At its core, repentance is relational. It's relational. It's returning to somebody that you hurt, asking for their forgiveness, and then seeking to restore the relationship. And for that to happen, the person that you hurt, they have to to absorb the pain. They have to choose to absorb that pain and that injustice and, in a sense, let you off the hook by forgiving you. Repentance is not just about shaping up and following the rules. Now, yes, I will say, if you love God, if you truly love God more than anything else, then you're going to want to please Him. You're going to want to do the things that please Him. If your life revolves around Him, you're going to want to be in a right relationship with Him. But you can shape up and you can follow the rules and look really good on the outside. You can clean that outside of the cup and still not repent. You Think of the story of the prodigal son. When the prodigal son came home, the father did not say, oh, thank goodness my son isn't sleeping with prostitutes anymore. Whew. Thank goodness he stopped drinking and partying. Thank goodness he's not hanging out with the wrong crowd. No, the father said, we have to celebrate because my son has returned. He was lost and he is found. He was dead to me, but now he's alive. I'm sure the father was thankful that the son had stopped those other self-destructive behaviors. But the main issue was their relationship. They had been separated, but now they were reunited again. On the other hand, the older brother in the story, he follows the rules, right? On the outside, he's this ideal firstborn son. He never steps out of line. He does everything he thinks the father wants him to do, but he doesn't love the father. He loves the Father's stuff, and he obeys the rules in order to earn the stuff. He needed to to return to the Father. He needed to know his Father just as much as the younger son who broke all the rules. They're both separated from their dad. And at the end of the son, it's the... I can't talk. At the end of the story, it's the younger son who's inside the house with the Father while the older son is outside. Repentance is returning to your Father. It's coming home to your spouse. It's knowing the one who loves you. Sometimes in order to motivate us to return to him, God allows us to experience pain. In this series, we've talked about God's tender love, but we've also talked about his tough love. How he allows the consequences of our sin to, to ravage our life, to hurt us, to cut us, to get our attention so that we turn back to him. The father in the prodigal son story didn't bail his son out, right? He didn't send money when he heard that his son had run out and was working on a pig farm. He didn't try to enable his son's self-destructive behavior. He allowed him to experience the consequences of his sin until he was ready to restore the relationship. And God does that with us. And Hosea did something similar with Gomer. 
You know, for me, the, the scariest thought is not that God might discipline, discipline me if I stray. That's not the scariest thought. The scariest thought for me is that God might not discipline me if I stray. That's much more scary. Because I know my pride. I know my hard heart. I know that when I get, when I get I'm stubborn, man. And when I get a certain idea in my head, I just forge ahead in my sin until I absolutely can't go any further. And so I pray, God, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to keep me close to you. Right? Put, that, put that wall around me. Don't let me go my own way. And I know that's going to involve pain at times. When I say, hey, I'm going I'm to go this way, and God puts that brick wall in front of me, I'm just going to have to smash into it, and I'm not real smart, so I might just keep hitting it a few times before I realize that, hey, this isn't the right way to go. But that's what I want from God, and that's what I pray from Him. And so there are two ways, then, to respond to God's discipline. When you run into that brick wall hard, and you realize, wow, I've made a bad choice. There's two ways to, to repent, or to appear to repent. They both look sad and sorrowful, but only one is real. We see this in Paul's letters. He, at one point, he writes to the Corinthians, there's a huge problem in the church in Corinth, and we don't know what it was, but it was really widespread. Paul had planted this church, and they're having a huge problem. And so Paul writes them a letter, and he says that he, says that he, he wrote it with tears and anguish. He, he writes them this letter saying, guys, you've got to repent. You've got to come back to Jesus. You're, you're straying. You're going away. And so he sends this letter, and he literally is holding his breath. Literally might be a strong word, but sometimes I'm sure. He's holding his breath, figuratively and sometimes literally, waiting for them to write back, waiting to hear what their response will be. Will they repent or not? And in the ancient world, you know, you can't just email or text or whatever. And so he's waiting months, waiting. And then finally, Titus returns with the good news that the Corinthians have repented. And Paul is so excited, he immediately writes them another letter. And you don't have to turn here, I'll just quickly read it. 2 Corinthians, I won't read the whole letter, but 2 Corinthians, there's a little section here where he talks about their repentance. 7 verse 8, Paul says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it at the time, I was, I was afraid that I made a mistake. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you're not... I can't lost my place. Not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. According to Paul, there's two kinds of sorrow. One is godly sorrow. It's a sadness over your sin and over what you're experiencing that brings you back to God. That causes you to return to a chesed relationship, a covenant relationship with God. And it causes you to press on and press in to know Him more. He becomes the most important person to you again. But there's another kind of sorrow that will kill you. Paul calls it worldly sorrow. We see an example of this in Matthew 27. You don't have to turn there again, I'll read it. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, sorrow, guilt, anguish. 
And he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas is filled with remorse, with this overwhelming sense of guilt, with blinding clarity, he sees what he's done. All that demonic fog of temptation and and confusion, all that is lifted. And now he sees the enormity of his sin. That he has betrayed not merely an innocent man, not merely his friend, his master, his teacher, but quite possibly God's Messiah. And in a desperate, irrational move, he, he, he brings the money back, thinking he can somehow exchange it for Jesus' life. But it's too late. The deed is done. The damage can't be reversed. And when he realizes that he can't fix his mistake, and there's nothing he can do to compensate for his guilt, he hangs himself. Some of you have made a huge mistake. A huge moral failure. And like Judas, you are desperate to fix it so you can alleviate your guilt and feel good about yourself again. And so you've given money and you've done good deeds and you've made promises and you've tried to punish or reform yourself with religion or whatever else you can think of and it hasn't worked. Your past can't be undone. And so what is the next step now? It's to escape. To try to forget the guilt and the shame. The ultimate escape is suicide, but there are other ways. Drugs, alcohol, illicit pleasure, entertainment, music, busyness, distractions, texting, social media. There are all ways to escape. Or they can be used that way. When my boys were little, under two years old, they each had something they used to self-soothe. When they would go to sleep at night, but also in the car. They, they generally don't like long car rides, or they didn't. And so each of them had something. Jude still right now has a blankie. Don't tell him I told you that. He's kind of sensitive about it. He's five now, but he still has it. And he, he, he'll use it. He rubs it with his little fingers and rubs his nose. And I don't understand how that self-soothes you, but it does to him. And I, I like the blanket because it's pretty self-contained. If he's sitting in his car seat and rubbing his nose and he happens to drop it, it just falls on his lap. It doesn't like roll off. It's just a blanket, right? It stays on his lap. And he picks it up again. Josiah, his way of self-soothing has always been food. And that'll probably get him in, could get him into trouble someday. Hopefully not. But he likes to eat. And so in the car, he'll generally have a lollipop or a uh, candy cane or a box of crackers or something. He likes to eat. And so the thing with that, I don't like that as much because it gets the car really dirty. And he's, you know, he'll drop stuff a lot. But at least... I have a big bag of candy canes that I, that I keep right beside me. And so if he drops his lollipop, his candy cane, I reach down the bag, I grab another one, and I just give it right back to him. It's easy. And so he doesn't freak out. Joshua, my oldest, his method of self-soothing was a pacifier. Not just any pacifier. Most pacifiers nowadays are real flat, and supposedly it's better for your teeth. But for Joshua, somebody had given us this pacifier, and one night when he was screaming, we were trying different ones, and this one was the one he liked. It's, it's a huge ball, like a huge rubber ball. 
And it, it like fills up your whole mouth. And it's real weird texture. And so he likes that. But I hated it. I was glad that it stopped him from crying. But here's the problem in the car. His oral like coordination wasn't great. And so he'd be back there in the car. You know, we'd be driving. All of a sudden, that thing falls out. And it rolls down his lap onto the, onto the car floor. And so now he's screaming, and I'm driving and trying to reach back, like trying to find that thing. And of course, you can never find stuff like that when, you're, when you need to while you're driving. And so I'm, I'm, and finally, I just give up, and, and what I do next, he's screaming. I just turn up the radio. <laughs> just turn that thing up, man. Crank up the volume. So we're rocking down the, down the road, and he's screaming in the background. And I think that's similar to how many people try to escape guilt and shame when they can't fix it. They just turn up the noise in their life. Listen to the radio. Be happy. There's, there's no screaming coming from the back seat in my life. No guilt there. Just, just keep looking ahead. And there's never been a noisier time period in human history. You know, in the old days, you hardly ever would find anybody who denied right and wrong because you couldn't escape your conscience. You couldn't. It's too quiet. And your conscience is shouting at you saying you've done something wrong. But nowadays, we just drown out our conscience until we no longer believe it's real. But the trouble is that deep, deep, deep down, we do know that there's right and wrong. And at unexpected times, in unforeseen ways, when when we happen to turn down the radio for something, the shame and the pain return. But there's another way to deal with that stuff. Besides just turning up the noise in your life. Judas wasn't the only disciple who betrayed his Lord that night. Peter fled, and then he denied that he even knew Jesus. And I, I, I think some of you right now are saying, oh, yeah, 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 I know, that's right. Peter did the right thing, Judas did the bad thing. But I think deep down, a lot of us feel like Judas's sin was worse. We're like, okay, yeah, sure, Peter, he repented, but really it wasn't that bad. Yeah, he said he didn't know Jesus. I say I don't know my kids all the time. But that's not that big of a deal, right? Well... In the ancient world, there was tremendous shame associated both with betraying your master, just explicitly, but also with abandoning your master when he needed you most. They were both a betrayal. They were both incredibly shameful. There's a very old tradition about Peter that it appears, first appears in the first century, and so I think there's probably some legitimacy to it. The church fathers said that when people wanted to heckle Peter, let's say he's out somewhere preaching, sharing the gospel, and there's people around who've heard the gospel before. They're kind of familiar with the Christian message. They're unbelievers, but they've heard it. They'd come, gather around. If they wanted to heckle him, they'd start crowing. Can you imagine that? You're trying to tell people about Jesus. You're trying to tell them how Jesus saved you, and they just start reminding you of all your hypocrisy, all the times you didn't live up. The worst time, the worst experience in your life where you didn't live up to your, your profession of faith. Peter and Judas' sins were very similar, and their endings could have been similar too, but Peter chose another way. John chapter 21 says that after Jesus' resurrection, he told the disciples to meet him up in Galilee, and so they go up there, they're waiting for him to appear, they don't know exactly where it's going to be, and so they're out in the lake, they're fishing, and at one point in the morning, they see this man on the shore, and eventually they realize it's Jesus. And John, the Apostle John, disciple, he says that Peter took off his outer clothes and, well, actually, he already had them off because they're fishing. He wrapped, kind of wrapped it around him and he jumped in the water and swam to Jesus. 
And I always thought that was kind of ridiculous because John also makes a point of saying that they're only about 100 yards offshore. So it would take them maybe five, ten minutes to get back. It's like, Peter, you just got so sopping wet. Your clothes are all wet now. You could have just waited like ten minutes, right? And so I'm always like, that Peter, that's, you know, he's just an impetuous person. But I think there's more to it than that. I think Peter was desperate to get back to Jesus. And instead of running away, instead of trying to escape... He swam back as hard as he could. He didn't care whether his clothes got wet. He didn't care if he got wet. He came home and he found grace. Judas's sin drove him to escape. Peter's sin drove him back to Jesus, where he found forgiveness and a fresh start. Peter didn't have to do penance. He didn't have to pay for his sin or escape it. He just had to come home. Many of you are, have heard, at least, of Max Lucado. He's a pastor in Texas. Uh, but before he was a pastor, he was actually a missionary in South America for quite a few years. And he crafted a story from some experiences that he had down there. And he, he has it in one of his books, and I want to read it here. Longing to leave her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with a home, having only a pallet for a bed, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove. She dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go and find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. She sat in a photo booth, closed the curtain, and spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos, she boarded the next bus to Rio. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. And when pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were before unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search. Bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And in each place, she left her picture taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened to a phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade those countless beds for her secure pallet. And yet the little village was, in too many ways, too far away. As she reached the bottom of the stairs, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo. Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. That invitation from God 
is as real and strong this morning as it has ever been. He says to you, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter because I have already paid the price for it. Please come home.